Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me on today's podcast is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Ah, doing good. Uh, excited to talk about the start of another Georgia legislative session. And also joining us today to talk about legislative session is Megan Payne. Megan, how are you? Hey, I'm well. I am also excited about the new legislative session and to see what it brings. Yes, so we are here today to talk about the 2020 legislative session. We have put out several pieces of content in the last few days. Be sure to refresh those feeds because earlier this week we talked about these seven questions that could define Georgia politics in 2020 based off a list of questions laid out by Greg Bluestein. You'll find that one in your feeds. We also talked with Matt Lieberman. He is a Democratic candidate for the U.S. Senate, and he, at least up until we spoke on Friday, was the only candidate announced for that seat. Ed Tarver, a former state senator, is also planning to jump into that race. Um, So that one is going to get really interesting going forward. But we got a chance to talk to Matt about his views on some of the issues that are pressing in Washington right now, like the uh, strike against Iran that killed a military commander and the fallout from that as well as his views on impeachment and some of the most pressing debates on policy within the Democratic Party. Um, So you'll find some other content aside from just this episode in your feed, so be sure to check those out. But on today's show, we are going to give you a full-fledged preview of the 2020 legislative session. We are recording on Sunday the 12th, so we are on session eve, and we're just going to kind of walk through some of the big fights that we are expecting in legislative session this time. This year's session, as they are in every even-numbered year, is an election year session, so we anticipate that it might be a shorter session. And the hope is, at least from the previews that have been given by key players like the governor, the speaker, the lieutenant governor, the hope is is that it's a smooth session focused on the budget, where social issue where divisive social issues and other polarizing legislation gets set to the side, but they never really meet those goals when they set them out. So we're going to talk about the things that might come up and create headaches for lawmakers as they try to get out of town and get ready for the election season. Luke, can you start us off by just giving us the framework for what you expect this legislative session? You previewed this a little bit for us when we talked about 2020. But what are you expecting from from Governor Kemp and, and legislative leadership in Atlanta this year? Well, I don't know what to expect from them. And and this uh, goes back to what I said on the last podcast when we talked about this. But, you know, I want to uh, go into it in, in more detail here now. This, I think, will be one of, if not the legislative sessions that really defines Brian Kemp. You know, last session for all first-term governors is, you know, your, your uh, training wheel session, basically. And this, this time, he kind of knows what he's walking into a little bit better, and I think we'll have more of an opportunity to define his governorship the way that he wants to uh, if he takes that route. And so really, I think there's two broad possibilities. There's option one, which is what you kind of laid out, which is what uh, Governor Kemp and other of the Republican leadership are really pointing out as what their goals for session are, which is basically to be substantive and boring. Uh, and and what I mean by that is, is it's boring to start with that one because it's a little bit easier is like just basically nothing that would get me in the national news. Like that, that is Brian Kemp's goal. That is a lot of the Republican leadership goal, you know, to just do absolutely nothing that would make a, you know, Washington Post or New York Times of the world think Georgia is worth covering right now. And instead, what they'd like to do is substantive things, which is address the pretty dramatic uh, budget cuts that Brian Kemp is seeking, 
and has to some extent already implemented continuing on that probably do a tax cut. We all know they want to do one. Uh, it's probably part of the reason why the budget cuts are happening. And focus on those things and get out of session as quickly as they possibly can after dealing with those issues so that all the state reps and state senators can go campaigning. None of the statewide electeds are up for re-election, so it's really just about um, getting those folks out because with tomorrow and the beginning of legislative session, all of the state uh, elected officials are not able to fundraise during session. So they have a pretty big incentive since a lot of them will be uh, challenged to get out of legislative session. So that is really what the Republican establishment leadership wing would like to have happen. And especially during Governor Deal's tenure, this is pretty much what they always said they wanted to have happen. And about, you know, I'd say half of the time it didn't go down that way. And what ended up happening, especially during these campaign year sessions, was that some of the more far right re- uh, uh, members of the Republican caucus, either for political reasons or, you know, to be fair, like their true ideological preference, they like to push really far right social conservative issues like RIFRA legislation, religious freedom legislation, like the abortion ban that we had last year. They like to push that stuff because it is good red meat for the Republican base and it gets them fired up and it gives them something to campaign on. And so I suspect what will inevitably happen is that Governor Kemp will be challenged by that far-right constituency and they will try to make him do things that he says he does not want to do. The real question, and this comes back to where I started, which is you know defining Governor Kemp, is last session he laid out that he was seeking a more moderate abortion proposal uh, once he is elected. And when presented with a moderate option or the more conservative option, he caved and went with the more conservative option. And so uh, what I'm looking to see is if these more radical social items do come up and do start to make it through the session, how hard will Governor Kemp fight to snuff those out? Or will he just like, well, I guess this is what the caucus wants and throw hands up and sign it? Yeah, Luke, I think you're right. I mean, I think even last year, Kemp entered what was a non-election year session, kind of wanting a quieter session, but got pushed to the right, like you mentioned. And what tends to happen is these bills and proposals that bubble up from the right wing of the caucus tend to get put on his desk and, and he has to make decisions in that instance. Megan, what are some of the bills that may be teed up uh, from the right wing of the caucus that may be the kind of thing Governor Kemp really doesn't want to see? So the first bill that comes to mind is the bill that would make transgender youth compete at as the gender that they were identified with at birth. This is something that like we're seeing in a couple of states, and this is something that I highly doubt Kemp wants to debate right now, um, especially because even within the LGBTQ community, this raises a lot of question marks. And there's just so much that goes into making a decision related to this. You know, one of the things that also is interesting about this legislation is that it's from a recently elected Republican lawmaker. It was filed by um, State Representative Philip Singleton. And he said that he filed the bill because he didn't want anyone to have a, quote, unfair advantage. This is not typically the the playbook on an election year. So Kemp does not want to see this. Just to summarize the bill a little bit, um, according to the AJC, quote, 
The Student Athlete Protection Act is designed to ensure that biological boys will only compete in sports against other biological boys and vice versa for girls. Um, This is what Singleton told the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He also said, quote, the intent of my bill is to make sure that every student has the opportunity to compete fairly. Jeff Graham, the executive director of the LGBTQ rights organization with Georgia Equality, has weighed in on this, as have um, several other LGBTQ leaders. And it's just this is not going to be the bill that Kemp wants to have to contend with on a year where a lot of seats might be up for grabs and potentially flippable because this is also a bill that affects people's children and whether or not people fully support transgender rights and things like that you definitely have some people who are more closely affected by transgender issues than they will let on than they want you to think and so this could potentially give people some pause especially because the question might become well what about my kid another bill that i think we're going to see is one that we've talked about on previous episodes um this bill is definitely going to be an issue and it basically makes aiding the gender transition of a minor a felony, not only for the doctors who perform the gender confirmation surgeries and procedures, but potentially they're talking about adding the parents. So again, this is one of those bills that are going to affect people even who aren't super engaged with LGBTQ rights more closely than people want to think or want to admit, um, just because this could come up in their lives. And all of a sudden, parents and doctors who are trying to make these decisions and trying to help people live their their best and full lives are coming under fire. I am interested to see how this goes down in the legislative session or if both of these bills just end up languishing in committee or, you know, just never really get their day on the floor. Yeah, so I think you have those two bills. The other issue that seems to have emerged in these legislative session previews that the governor and, and leadership are giving is the issue of adoption reform and this effort Following last year's passage of anti-abortion legislation, Republicans have this desire to sort of fulfill their pro-life moniker. And part of what they want to do to do that is to, they say, to reform the adoption system so that more kids in foster care can get adopted, so that you can reduce some of the bureaucratic issues in terms of getting a family from the beginning of the process to the end. I think what is unclear in that proposal is what does it exactly mean in terms of policy? And is there an opportunity for lawmakers, maybe some of the same lawmakers who are pushing these bad transgender bills to put poison pills in this legislation that maybe would prohibit LGBTQ families from adopting or other issues that held up prior pieces of adoption legislation? Luke, if these issues do become a significant part of session, what is like the way out for Kemp? I mean, it, can he go to lawmakers and just say, hey, guys, this is an election year and we don't want this nonsense? Or do you think that the lesson from the way he reacted to abortion legislation last time is that he may fold to the right wing of the caucus? He should just, you know, learn a lesson from Nancy Reagan. Just say no. But <laughs> but if that does not work, he should then, you know, learn a lesson from his predecessor, Nathan Deal. Uh, when you know Nathan Deal was pretty consistent a lot of times, and I think I think this is a a lesson like almost any elected official in the executive role who has the veto power should learn because it it, it will help you in the long run. 
Governor Deal had a lot of times where he would basically just say, I am not interested in a bill or this issue. Do not put it on my desk. And when the legislature did, he would veto it. And he would say, I said I did not want to vote on, you know, I did not want this bill. I said I had this, these specific issues with this bill, and you gave it to me anyway. I have vetoed it. If you want me to sign this bill, you need to make these changes. And that pretty much worked for Governor Deal every time he did it. So, I, I mean, that's, that's what I would say would, would be uh, to Kemp's benefit here, is that if he doesn't have enough institutional levers to pull or sway with his caucus to prevent uh, them from giving, you know, putting those pieces of legislation on his table, like, use your Vigo pen, man. You were elected governor. You have that power in the Georgia Constitution. Use it. Uh, and, and that way, he won't be dealing with this every single session. Now, it's not as if it's smooth sailing on all the other non-social issues that may pop up. Two of the issues that may be worth watching in tandem are the things that are the priorities of different players within the legislative process. So Governor Kemp ran for governor saying that he would institute a $5,000 raise for teachers. They got 3000 of it in his first year, um, and he would like to see the additional 2000 put on at the bare minimum before he runs for re-election. On the other side of this, you have David Ralston, the speaker, who shepherded through tax cut legislation in the 2018 legislative session, and that legislation sets up a vote during this year's session to cut the income tax another quarter percentage point on that rate. Um, It was really interesting to watch Kemp and Ralston message these two priorities in different interviews that they did prior to legislative sessions starting. Uh, David Ralston was asked about the teacher raises amidst this environment of having to do budget cuts and consider an additional tax cut. And he said that the teacher raises were not a campaign promise that he made. And although it's a laudable goal, he didn't sound very enthusiastic about being able to get it through the budget process. Governor Kemp, he sort of took the same tack on Ralston's priority. When asked about this tax cut vote that was teed up in 2018 when Deal was still governor, he said that he wasn't a part of the legislative process when that was considered and that that would have to be balanced against other priorities. So it definitely seems like there is some give and take between the two on these issues. And normally you might think, well, that's like the perfect item for horse trading. You know, Governor Kemp gets his teacher raises, Ralston gets his tax cuts, and everybody gets to go home happy. But both of those issues have to be thrown in the bucket with demands from the governor that the budget be cut. The amended little budget that'll be considered at the beginning of session has to be cut by 4%. Next year's budget that'll be considered second, that budget has to have 6% cuts in it. Um, And that comes at the backdrop of declining revenue intake from the state government. Uh, which is attributable to a lot of different things, but one of the things it's attributable to is concerns over the the health of the economy. Megan, when you th- sort of throw all these things together, do you have any sense of how much chaos might be created by these competing priorities, or or do you think lawmakers are going to be able to figure this out? That's a great question. I do think it will be very chaotic. I have a lot of faith in the Georgia legislature and everyone being able to and our state leaders and being able to figure things out. But I do think that at least for a while, at least at the beginning of the session, no one's going to really know what to tackle first. Um, I know looking at it myself, all of the things that are kind of to be considered, it's very much a game of um, what feels like three-dimensional chess, just because 
There are so many moving pieces. Actually, you know what? Scratch three-dimensional chess. This is a game of Jenga. You move one piece and the whole thing might come toppling down, or you move it correctly and you can build on it and it's and it looks maybe not looks great, but is stable and will work. So how's that for how's that for a board game analogy or a game analogy rather? But but yeah, I I I will I'm very interested to watch to see how this goes down. I'm going to be play, paying close attention to um what gets brought up as potential compromises and I will also be in touch with my legislators a good bit when I feel that the compromises are not actually fair. So another high profile thing that could get thrown into this mix with the budget could be a real point of contention between different factions in leadership are tax credits that we give to movie production companies that produce films and do film and TV related work in Georgia. These tax credits have, I think, kind of surprisingly been the target of two different audit reports in the week before session. The timing seems a little suspect to me, but we can talk about it. And these audits have said that the tax credits have allowed for companies to get benefits from them when they did not earn them. For instance, when they weren't doing film and TV production work in state, they still got some credits because of poor oversight. That was one audit report. The second audit report said that the benefits of this program to Georgia's economy have been overstated by the state economic development department. The state auditors basically made the argument that when economic development people talk about these film tax credits, they don't consider that if the state had taken the revenue from the tax credit and put it to something else, what the economic impact of doing that would be. Um, And that as a result, we have this inflated sense about how important these film tax credits are. But Luke, these two audits are not the only political fight that has involved the film industry and Georgia Republicans in the last year or so. What other things have been going on with the film industry that may have put a target on these tax credits? Well, unsurprisingly, when it comes to controversies in Georgia, the you know the two big ones are uh, the Kemp Abrams election and controversies controversies around if that was. Uh, you know, stoling or a fair election or uh, runs the gamut. And so it's, you know, there's either controversies about that or the one <laughs> that it involves the film industry was the abortion ban issue and a lot of promise, prominent uh, DC types and a lot of BCD listers in Hollywood also came out against it and make a big splash about um, the the fact that we had passed that measure and uh, you know threatened to pull out of the state and really to my knowledge pretty much no one has and I think this is another example like the uh, Delta Airlines uh, stopping to get uh, stopping a promotional deal with the NRA and then losing their fuel tax credit I think this is probably an issue where some of the conservative hardliners are aiming at this this tax credit for political reasons. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if that at least serves as motivation for some socially conservative Republicans to consider significant changes to those tax credits, to cutting them significantly. Um, I think the 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 conflict will happen between people who look at these tax credits skeptically 
because of the overstated economic impact and people who look at their political stances on issues like abortion and RIFRA versus some in leadership who think that these are a very important economic development tool. These were credits that were very central to Governor Deal's argument for economic prosperity in the state. And he was very stern about not considering any cuts or changes to these credits that would make them less valuable to film production companies. You know, Governor Deal is not there to champion those tax credits and protect them. And it is Governor Kemp's central legislative accomplishment, the abortion ban, that these Hollywood companies have so vociferously opposed. So I do wonder if there's an opportunity to cut these significantly. And I don't think that the timing of these audit reports is entirely benign a week before session when they would get maximum attention and when there may be an effort to cut these tax credits back. Megan, how do you think Democrats should react to that conversation? I mean, they stood arm in arm with the film industry, with B, C, D list stars who came in to fight that abortion uh, ban last year. Do they have some obligation to stand up for these tax credits, or do you think that they may have some criticisms of their own? I think that at the end of the day, um, Democrats do have a responsibility to stand up to support these credits. You know, everyone, not just Democrats, but pretty much all of the state legislature really wants Georgia to be, you know, kind of a a destination for for businesses to come in, and that includes film. And if we do, and, and honestly, the more film that comes in, then the more the more other industries can grow because of revenue, but also to support the film industry. It becomes this cyclical situation that continues to build. And so I think that with that outlook, with the Georgia is a good state for business outlook, the Democrats have to stand up and say, say, hang on a second. If we want to attract businesses here, then we need to have some incentive to do that. Also keeping in mind that much like the abortion ban and a few of the other measures that Uh, Georgia has taken over the years and a few other measures that are on the table, those become problematic. Those become counter to the beliefs of large businesses that want to attract a very diverse and talented workforce. So Dems can't have it both ways, really, in my opinion. The Dems need to say, all right, we've got some problems here. So this is what's going to potentially outweigh those problems. We have to go all in on supporting them and, and making sure that we can continue these credits. So another issue that sort of plays in this space, all of these issues are connected to the budget in that they either take away revenue from the state or they may be new opportunities to bring in revenue. One opportunity for bringing in revenue may be the question of gambling and allowing casino gambling in the state of Georgia. This is an issue, this really is starting to feel like the perennial issue of session that may never go anywhere. But there are, again, talks of allowing a constitutional amendment that would allow voters to decide whether or not to authorize casino gambling in the state of Georgia. Democrats generally have not opposed this idea, but have tended to condition that the tax revenue generated by casino gambling go to things that are Democratic priorities, whether it's need-based aid for the Hope Scholarship or enhancements to the amount of money that is available under the Hope Scholarship. Um, I think it's been floated that revenue for Medicaid expansion could even come from gambling revenue. But Luke, this requires a very heavy lift in the legislature. It requires two-thirds of each chamber to back it, to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot, and then give voters the opportunity to give it a yes or no. 
what is your outlook for whether or not that constitutional amendment is actually finally going to get considered uh, in the Gold Dome this year? So I would say that the chances for that constitutional amendment are probably better than ever, but they're still not great. Uh, the reason that they're better for than ever is because of the fact that we are uh, entering into a budget crunch. We can argue if it's you know self-created or not. Um, you know I would argue it is, but that irrelevant for the the gambling issue that, and that extra revenue. Uh, one thing that um, Republicans you know will say that is a nuance that is is not captured very often in politics is they're not against you know most most Republicans are not against. Uh, creating new revenue streams for the state. Um, and a lot of them look at gambling as a potential new revenue stream. You know, they don't like taxes, but if they can, if they can diversify the way that the government raises money, they, they like to do that. And that's why we, you know, hear about taxing Amazon sales and other internet sales and stuff like that. So the way that gambling does potentially happen in Georgia, I think, would be in response to us, you know, the, the legislature just feeling like there's no other way for Georgia to raise money for some of its priorities. And with the fact that this would be a constitutional amendment issue and add the fact that there are plenty of Republicans who are just like morally against uh, gambling uh, and don't want it for any reason, it's going to take a, a pretty significant amount of the Democratic caucuses of both chambers to support uh you know this measure if it's going to actually get on the ballot and i just i just don't see it being there and the main reason i don't is because of like i where i started with this again was like the a lot of democrats feel like the budget crunch that georgia is feeling is created by the fact that uh georgia taxes are pretty low right now we really don't spend a whole lot of money as a state, especially for a state that's as big as we are. And that Kemp's insistence that we need to cut spending more uh, is just, it's just going to fall on deaf ears and for, for good reason for many Democrats. And so I just don't see the legislators who support casino gambling and the lobbyists for casino gambling having anything of significance to bring to the table that they haven't you know, that they haven't already tried to bring. And so I don't, I don't, I don't see this being the year for it either. The one thing I wonder is, is this a place where Democrats have some leverage? The one thing that Governor Kemp has not had to do yet, that Governor Deal had to do, was shepherd through a priority in the legislature that required votes from Democrats and Republicans. The big bipartisan achievement from Governor Deal was probably getting nearly a billion dollars a year in additional road funding. That was a tax increase that required Democratic votes because they were never going to be able to get some of their most right-wing members to support that revenue increase. I wonder here if Democrats use their leverage in budget negotiations to sort of draw a really hard line about the cuts that they would accept and be very vocal about the fact that they will be very aggressive in campaign season about campaigning against very bad budget cuts, but then holding out casino gambling and saying, well, here's some additional revenue that we could support, but we're only going to support it if we avert some of these really bad cuts. If that's a deal that Republicans could find a way to accept. Governor Kemp, he doesn't really have strong feelings on the casino gambling question 
in part because the fact that it's a constitutional amendment requires two-thirds of a vote in the chamber. Two-thirds of a vote also overturns a governor's veto, so he could veto it and they would just take the same vote and he would lose. But I think this is one place where they can hold out additional revenue and say that they'll only back getting that revenue if you have less painful cuts. And that's something that uh, Leader Trammell has said he will be focused on. He told the media, I think he told us this, but he told the media talking about these budget cuts, he said the danger when it comes to tightening and cuts is that people with the leanest waste often get squeezed the tightest. We talked earlier in the fall about some of the really vulnerable groups of people who would be subject to these cuts, cuts to things like state mental health services or the agriculture extension program. Those were all drafts, and we'll have to see how all that pans out. But this does seem like one opportunity for Democrats to have a little bit of leverage. I mean, maybe. I I, I think the issue with that argument, though, is the fact that most Democrats that I've heard that have flirted with allowing casino gambling, they really want it to be focused on funding things like the Hope Scholarship and K-12. through I mean, really, like the easiest way to explain it is I I think the, at least right now, the majority Democratic position is that if we allow casino gambling, it would only be to increase the revenue that went to the things that the Hope Scholarship funds and not to fund anything else. And so as far as addressing Republican concerns uh, about how much money the state's spending on things and what our tax rates are, I don't know if that would really bail them out or not. Yeah, I guess it all kind of depends on how the revenue shakes out and how much revenue they really believe they're going to be able to get from casino gambling. I mean, part of the reason that they're in this budget crunch in the first place is they passed the tax cut in 2018 without having had the windfall from the Republican tax reform in Washington come in. And then revenue numbers have been lower than projected. So they kind of spent that money before they had it. Um, you certainly Fiscal wonder. conservatism. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they certainly could get in the same problem if they try to be too aggressive with projections about casino gambling. I just want to note that based on the conversation that, um, especially some of the things that Kyle just brought up, the legislature needs to keep in mind that they have a job. And that job is that Sometimes they have to make compromises and creating a hard line on something that they're not going to budge on is not productive when they could be getting some of the things that they want, just not all of it, or could be keeping some of the things that they want, but just not all of them. But like that, that that's frustrating for me when I see the legislature, you know, creating such a hard line on something that nothing gets done, even a piece of what they want, because it's not everything that they want. And we see this both on the state and federal level. Yeah, I mean, I think you see that. One of the things that's going to be interesting to me is we've talked about a lot. We've still got a few things to talk about. But this is a this is a really long to-do list. And often, or I think the tension for me with this session is there are a lot of things that could be very time-consuming. But we've talked about the political necessity that they feel like they want to get out of town. So what does get set to the side and pushed off for a future session? Some of these f- things feel like they can't. The tax cut vote can't get pushed off because prior legislation tees up this vote for this session. But that tax cut legislation is sort of like a piece in the puzzle to everything else with the budget. And so how much of a cluster does that become 
when you have to figure out what can we do now, when you got some people that want to go home early, and what do we do with some of these tougher issues that we can't really ignore when we write the budget, and then you're going to have people coming from another direction who want red meat social issues to get teed up and give them campaign ads to run. This, I think, will be a really significant test of leadership's ability to put all these things together. And that's why I actually wonder that if Democrats have some leverage there, because there's just going to be so many moving pieces on the Republican side. And Republicans can act nearly unilaterally on things if they want to. But I think that they are also sort of sensitive to the fact that there is going to be a real competitive election for the House. And to the extent that they can put out some fires that they don't want to have to deal with in campaign season, that also is beneficial to them. So it's that I think is the really interesting dynamic in session is there will be so many moving pieces, so many demands from so many different people. And Governor Kemp is relatively inexperienced in managing those things. How all of that plays out, I think is going to be really more interesting in this year than it has been in several years. Right. And I think the answer to your question of what gets pushed to the side, I think you accidentally answered it yourself, Kyle, which is the things that aren't easily solved in a yes-no fashion. And what I mean by that is with a lot of those red meat issues, like there's really not a whole lot of debate about what it would look like and what it would what you would do with it. It's like, you know, the transgender bill, it's rigging it's already dropped. And if you're going to do that, like that's what that bill's going to look like. Same thing with the abortion bill. There was the more, uh, you know, moderate option and there was the extreme option. And you basically just choose, you know, chose which one you were going to do. The budget and other like financial issues are so insanely complicated that I think basically, unless it's just, you know, like there, there's two things I think that can get done this session either very, very social policy driven red meat issues and then there are thing there's the budget and the asterisk you know budget related mandatory tax cut vote that they have to do and if it's any other big thing like gambling i doubt there's enough oxygen for it and you know now because i've said this every single thing like that will get voted on and passed and i'll <laughs> i'll in in session by saying wow i was wrong <laughs> and we got <laughs> out by march what an amazing session you know but yeah <laughs> um yeah that's that's really you know if i had to put my chips down like i think that is what we're gonna see is that they're gonna get in there and every single day there's gonna be pictures in the ajc of a state rep or you know state senator with their head in their hands trying to figure out how they're going to deal with this budget mess that they created for themselves with you know the tax cut vote and Kemp wanting to cut spending more and them just being like how are we going to do this and as always they'll muggle through and figure something out and you know Ralston will yell Sonny die and we'll do it all over again in a year. So we've talked about Basically, everything we've talked about so far is through the lens of Republican priorities, things that will be put forward by Republican leadership or from the the right wing of the Republican caucus. Democrats do have some priorities of their own, but it does feel difficult to envision a session where they aren't mostly playing defense against various things that we've talked about so far. But House Democratic leader Bob Trammell has told the press 
he's got a few things on his mind that he would like to see done. They have several pieces of gun legislation that they that have been previously introduced that they say are bottled up in committee that they would like to be considered. They will certainly message around that legislation. We'll see how successful they can be in getting people to take it seriously. They are also going to introduce a bill to repeal last year's six-week abortion ban. Um, It seems unlikely that that'll be taken very seriously, but that is another messaging effort on their part. And then they want a continued push for full Medicaid expansion. Um, As you may remember, Governor Kemp has submitted two waivers to the federal government that sort of constitute his alternative to Medicaid expansion. It's going to cover much fewer people at a higher state cost than what would be available under Medicaid expansion. But the waivers are sort of done in a legislative context that you have basically regulatory wrangling between the state and federal governments on that issue. But Democrats will probably be messaging around Medicaid expansion. Megan, what is your reaction to those priorities? Do you think that there's a serious effort to actually get accomplishments on any of those things? And are are there things missing from that list that you wish Democrats were prioritizing? I think that you hit I think you hit the nail on the head, Kyle, when you said that the Dems are going to be playing defense. And you know, that's just that's that's a numbers game, right? Like we're in Georgia. And right now in our legislature, the Democrats are the minority. I do think, though, that one of the things that um, you listed a ton of things, but one of the things that I think is perhaps missing, and um, I don't know that it is not explicitly a priority, but is definitely something that I haven't heard a lot of talk about coming toward this new session, is perhaps a resurrection of the hate crimes bill or something similar to help make Georgia a more a more inclusive and supportive state. And that that is something that I really hope to see. And that is something that I really do think Democrats should be prioritizing. Luke, that's legislation that has some Republican support. Do you think that that is one that Democrats may be able to get done? Well, on that one, I, I would really not frame it in the sense of like Democrats getting it done. Like I think that is a bipartisan issue. There's been plenty of Republicans pushing for it. Now it is at least to my recollection, unanimously supported among Democrats, but and it had you know pretty good support among Republicans. I I think part of the reason we're probably not hearing about the hate crimes legislation is that it was a hard fought fight last time, and that they probably really want to get it done. And with those issues that sort of burn out in an earlier session. I they have a way of kind of being a sleeper issue that like there are people working on it and you don't really hear about it and then you know it's crossover day and like surprise it popped up and then you know again and Sangi dies surprise it pops up and I kind of feel like it could be one of those issues where the folks that are advocating for it are advocating for it pretty strongly and loudly but among their members and not in the media because uh, it's one of those things that can be controversial for the wrong reasons and by uh, talking about it in a more quiet fashion they're able to I wouldn't say sneak it through but I mean effectively that is what they're probably trying to do is to uh, give the members who are either morally against some of the hate crime protections for LBGT uh, folks or um, just you know for whatever reason, you might vote against a hate crimes bill uh, for being a racist or anything else, trying to not give them uh, opportunity to attack it and trying to 
get it through the process and close to the finish line so that they can kind of do concerted pushes because that strategy has worked for a lot of other pieces of legislation in the past. The other Democratic priority that I'll be really interested to watch is if any of this gun legislation moves. We've talked to candidates running for Congress, running for state House and state Senate, and consistently across the Democrats that we've talked to, everyone talks about quote-unquote common sense gun reforms. This is the one place where the party feels very unified and where they appear to feel like Republicans may be on the wrong side of this issue. I've heard over and over again about kids having to do lockdown drills to prepare for school shootings, and that that is a motivating factor for restricting access to guns in one way or another. I've heard it from people who are running as very progressive. I've heard it from people who are running, and it feels like they're in sort of a moderate lane. There's unified messaging around this. And when you look at the recent Democratic takeover in Virginia, where Democrats now control government fully there, gun legislation is at the top of their agenda. So it does feel as if this is a pressing item for Democrats. And if Republicans wanted to somewhat take this issue off the table, it seems like they may give on a very moderate gun bill and be able to say that they did something for school safety or did something to protect people who might be survivors of domestic violence. But you know, there will be significant pressure from the right to not allow that to happen. So that's one that I think is also uh, at the center of debate. And if Democrats were going to win somewhere, it may be in a small form on some form of gun legislation. Yeah, I would take a more cynical take on that one. It's an election year, and I don't think Georgia politicians, especially on the Republican side, feel like being anti-gun control is yet a losing issue for them. I think they still feel like the NRA and other similar groups and uh, open carry groups in Georgia have a lot of sway, and I don't think they're afraid of the pro-gun control groups yet and the very clear rising majority on that issue, and I think it's going to take some prominent state reps who are very adamant anti-gun control folks to lose to some very loudly pro-gun control uh, folks before they really start to feel that way. And, and that I think that's really a reflection of the fact that I've worked several legislative sessions. You know, I've done two start to finish and then many others I've watched or been there for a lot of it. And there's a real presence among the, you know, anti-gun control groups. Like they're there. There's physical people on the ground who are talking to legislators. They will send, you know, lobbyists with thousands of petitions signed saying don't, you know, don't do these bills. That happens every session. And you don't see that from the gun control groups yet. And so while, you know, we have the example of like Lucy McBath, who was a pretty loud gun control supporter, being uh, Karen Handel, who did nothing to address this crisis in our country uh, with, you know, school shootings, and other uh, shootings, it unfortunately is not felt yet. And I think it's going to take another election or two before it is. And, you know, maybe something small on the domestic violence. That's kind of that's that is one of those areas where I agree with you. I'm hopeful that if anything happened, I think it would be there because 
luckily those types of issues do sometimes get support in Georgia. Um, that's one thing I, I will say I am proud of our state for is where uh, some other states will have those issues pop up and just it's not even a discussion. At least in Georgia, it's a discussion. And while half of the time it doesn't go the right way, that means the other half it does go the right way and we actually do the right thing. And so I agree with you on on trying to prevent uh, people with a history of domestic violence of getting weapons. I, I I think that is an angle we could push successfully and might get uh, something done. But the rest of it, I'm far more skeptical. Well, Luke, you kind of started talking about what I wanted to interject with, which is that it depends on what the legislation is for in Georgia, right? Georgia, as you have mentioned, is very much influenced by those that are against uh, gun control. But at the same time, you said, you know, with that we tend to kind of support it more for domestic violence. And I really just think it, it it does depend. I think it depends on what weapons are considered. I think it depends on what circumstances these legislations are considered. And I think that that's how we'll start to see those changes happen in Georgia in very specific cases that then tend to grow rather than just kind of blanket. All right, we're going to do you know, more comprehensive gun control overall. I, I think that that's how we're going to see this change, especially since even federally, we've seen some support for some very small changes related to gun control. And I think that's where the I think that's where the magic's at in Georgia. Well, and it's worth remembering, too, that we've at least moved a little bit off the far right position. Uh, Governor Kemp campaigned on supporting constitutional carry legislation that would allow people to carry guns without any kind of permitting process. And then he didn't really engage on it in his first year. And it doesn't seem like something he would engage on this year either. So we are further from that conversation than you might have thought we would be based on his uh, Republican primary campaign in 2017 and 2018. All right, so there are a lot of things to look forward to in legislative session. There is a whole list of issues that we haven't even touched on Uh, that may be considered. There were a bunch of things that came out of study committee recommendations that are going to be on the table, things to do with regulating uh, scooters and and other vehicles like that in urban areas, Uh, the possibility of extending Medicaid coverage to pregnant women for an entire year after they give birth. That was another recommendation. Um, A third recommendation in this bucket is this concept called raise the age legislation, which is meant to charge 17-year-olds as minors instead of adults. That's like an important criminal justice reform piece. We are going to talk about things in this bucket as they come up. These are things that we are going to pay close attention to uh, because these things that are somewhat below the radar are the substantive things that could actually move and, and potentially hopefully create good policy in this state. Uh, But all of that is going to take a little while to get going. Uh, When you are listening to this, you're probably hearing this on Monday, the very first day of legislative session. Uh, The first week of legislative session tends to be pretty quiet. You might see some committee meetings get going, but the big items that are set to occur during the first week is the governor will give his state of the state address. This is the analog to the president's state of the union address, and we'll probably see a more concrete set of priorities from Governor Kemp in that speech. Governor Kemp will also unveil his budget proposal. Very important within that budget proposal is what the governor sets the revenue estimate as. This basically is sort of the number that everyone has to honor and get to in the budget process. The governor has significant authority in setting that number. Um, So those are two of the big things 
that will happen this week. And then from there, things will begin to kick off. They'll begin to heat up probably once you get past day 10. And between day 10 and day 28 of legislative session, you'll see a lot of the action on the budget and legislation in the chambers it starts in, whether it's the House or the Senate. Day 28 is that big crossover day marker to look for. That's when legislation has to clear the side that it starts on and make it over to the other side of the hallway to really to be legitimately considered before the end of session. We'll get to it once we get there, but there are certainly shenanigans that will allow some proposals to bypass that requirement. Uh, so that'll be something to look forward to as well. But for now, I think we are going to leave it there. So Luke, thank you for joining the podcast and giving us this pre-session rundown. Happy legislative session, everyone. And Megan, thank you for joining and, and keeping tabs on on some of this really uh, important and also distressing legislation that may get considered. Thanks for having me. And it's my pleasure to keep an eye on it. All righty, y'all. We'll talk to y'all later. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.